Welcome to Letters to Women, a podcast that explores the feminine genius. Stereotypes are often deeply ingrained into the way that we think and the way that we approach people. We assume things about people based on whether they're a man or a woman, what faith they belong to, what they do for a living, and where they live. But often, when you step in and you get to know someone, the stereotypes surrounding them are broken. During his visit to his home country of Poland, St. John Paul II urged the crowd gathered to reject the lies that they had been told, and he said, you are not who they say you are. Let me remind you of who you are. So today on the podcast, we're talking about common misconceptions surrounding our lives as Catholic women and how we can be reminded of our true identities as daughters of God. And we're welcoming to the podcast, Lizzie, who I had the pleasure of meeting her face-to-face at a conference, a family conference in Iowa last year. And so now I get to have her on my podcast to talk about stereotypes. So welcome to the podcast, Lizzie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's so neat. I keep I think about you quite a bit because I see you through my Facebook feed. But then we have a couple. We have a mutual friend here who lives in Kansas City now, Jenny. And so it's just been really neat to get to know her and to get to know to keep getting to know you. So I'm excited for today's today's chat. Yes, me too. I was so happy when I figured out that you guys, that you and Jenny, were in the same like social circles. I was like, you guys need to meet each other because. Y'all are like kindred spirits. <laughs> <laughs> and we are, so it worked out really well. <laughs> Great. Yes. <laughs> okay, so let's just dive right into this. Can you tell us your story as a Catholic woman? Um, so I'm 19, turned 19 last month. Um, I'm sophomore in college, and I'm studying vocal music. So that's been fun so far. Um, I was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa, so I've never moved, never even moved houses before. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's funny because I hear people talking all the time, they're like, oh, yeah, when I moved to this place and that place, and I'm like, I've never had to pack up all my things and go. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. (laughs) So I'm the youngest of six kids, and I have two wonderful parents, and my sibling, my, sorry, my parents brought us up really, um, devoutly in the faith. And we prayed as a family together every single night, and that was wonderful. And my parents read us Bible stories. And so I loved having, like, that family time together. Mm-hmm. It really solidified, um, like, the unit of who our family was. Um, but I didn't really, like, learn to claim the faith as my own until I was in confirmation prep, actually, when I was 13. Uh, when I was younger, if you were to ask any of my catechesis teachers that I had, when I was young, like before confirmation, they'd be like, um, she was like such a smart aleck and she would never stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I had so many questions and some of the teachers like didn't want to delve too deeply into the subjects of whatever we were talking about. And I was like, why not? Like, why can't we just talk about like the church's moral teachings on sexuality? I know we're in first grade, but seriously. <laughs> I really loved it into my faith when I was in confirmation prep, like I said, Um, and my sponsor, Jennifer, was a huge influence on me because she was willing to talk about anything. She answered all my questions that I had, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of questions that my catechesis teachers um, or my family members were like maybe too afraid to discuss or didn't want to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful uh, for Jennifer's influence on me. Yeah. so then I kind of started to get more involved in my faith as I um, approached confirmation. I became really um, 
like mildly obsessed with <laughs> uh, studying scripture and the catechism, and then I learned about theology of the body mm. by Pope St. John Paul the Great, and that absolutely changed so many things about the way that I see the human person, and I realized, like, this is what I was longing for. Like, this is exactly how I've always seen things, but he just really put it into um, the words that I had never been able to come up with, obviously because he was a pope and I was, like, a 13-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I got more involved in um, my faith, and then um, I really started to look to St. John Paul II as a spiritual father for me, more like a spiritual grandpa, I'd say. Yep. Um, I loved his passion and zeal for Christ and um, truth and the sanctity of the human person. It made a huge impact on me, and it still does to this day. So it's been, um, I guess, six years since then, and so I still ask tons of questions every day to people that I trust <laughs> spiritually, and I'm always enjoying learning more. That's so beautiful. I love I love being friends with you on Facebook because just like what you've said with your story just so connects so that you're not afraid to say what you're thinking and you're not afraid to ask those deep questions. And so, I yeah, I love how that's still like I can perceive that and I just like mostly know you through Facebook and it's just been really beautiful to see that come like into real life and that being conversations too. <laughs> So today's conversation, I, I wanted to talk with you about stereotypes specifically because of your ability to ask those deep questions and say what's on your mind. So for today's interview with Lizzie, we're just going to talk about stereotypes that she's experienced in her life and then also how she's broken those stereotypes and how she's working to break those stereotypes in her own life too. So to start with, um, number one, what are some gender stereotypes that you faced as a woman specifically and how do you break those stereotypes? This is a really interesting one. I was looking at this and I was kind of like the subject of like breaking stereotypes and not being afraid of what other people are going to think of you. When you kind of told me that that was the theme of this episode, I was like, oh, great. Like, why did she pick me for this? Because I was like, what are people going to like think of me? People are going to think I'm really weird. It's not that I let that control me, but it's like kind of a lifelong process, I'd say, Mm -hmm. of like making sure that other people are not like determining like my future mm-hmm. or my like value in life. So um, I guess as far as gender stereotypes, I would say like like I said, I'm a really talkative person and I ask a lot of questions. Um, and so I face gender stereotypes mostly regarding like um, the classroom. In my classes that I've taken, I've had some professors, usually male who don't really seem to take my opinion very seriously, and they mm. kind of underestimate my capabilities, it seems. Um, and so I break that as best as I can by using my voice to talk even louder. Not <laughs> so much to like prove myself to them. <laughs> my motivation behind like why I do this and why I, like instead of quieting down, I tend to, you know, I say I talk even louder. I don't literally mean yelling at people, but I just like don't back down because mm-hmm. I know that that's what they want me to do and I'm never going to overcome that and I'm letting these people have power over me if I do that mm-hmm. but I'm not really um raising my voice left to like prove myself to anyone mm-hmm. but more so because I just kind of want to be a good example to other women especially to help them realize how strong they are and how powerful women can be when we like speak up for ourselves and for each other especially because being a woman is hard enough um, being a woman in the classroom or 
um, in our Catholic faith or, you know, really any circumstance really puts another twist to it. So it's really important that we support each other and our examples Mm -hmm. for one another. Yep. And that's such a countercultural way of approaching it too, because the culture will say, you know, like, oh, you know, don't worry about pushing other women out of the way. Don't worry about thinking of yourself first, but to respond in a situation where you're like, oh, like I want to be heard and to also like take into consideration the fact that other women want a chance to be heard is really beautiful too. And like what a Catholic way to respond to that. Speaking of Catholicism, so the next stereotype that we're going to tackle is what are stereotypes that you faced as a Catholic and how do you break those stereotypes? I love this because you're so passionately, beautifully Catholic. Um, and, but I know that there's stereotypes that you probably have to face in like the daily, da- in your daily life. So, so how are those, what are those in your life and how do you fight those? <laughs> it's just, it's really funny to me that this is a question like that I'm answering right now because I just had an encounter like last week mm-hmm. with, um, a few of my classmates who were kind of bashing the church and the church hierarchy and like the whole concept of organized religion, mm-hmm. which I understand why people are doubtful about it because humans are, you know, um, human beings make mistakes in every organization. Mm-hmm. But it was really like it was kind of hard to stand there and listen to them like say these things. And I was thinking, oh, like this is one of the questions that I'm going to answer <laughs> for the <laughs> podcast interview. So I guess I better figure out how I do break these stereotypes. <laughs> it's much easier to like write about it in a blog post and yep. actually be in a situation where your classmates are like, Oh, I don't like Pope Francis. And you're like, Oh, oh okay. Let me, let me uh, try to approach this with charity. Uh-huh. <laughs> so true. Basically. Um, yeah. Big stereotype. I think that I've faced the most is that um, a lot of like friends and acquaintances will think that just because I'm Catholic, that that means that I don't want to have fun, which I don't really know if I just come across that way. It's strange oh. because I smile and laugh a lot, so you'd think that people know that I love to have fun, <laughs> but I guess not. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of people, like, you know, they'll recommend a movie to me, like a, a, a friend or something. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, uh, this is a great movie. You should go see it. Oh, but I forgot. Like, you probably can't see it because it's you know, rated R or PG-13. People probably see God as our father, who's like, I don't know, bossy, like our real parents. Not that my parents are bossy. Love you, Mom and Dad. <laughs> but they didn't let me see PG-13 movies till I was 13. That was hysterical. But, <laughs> like, um, God exists outside of time and space and cinemas. So I think it's okay sometimes to, like, do fun, regular, you know, normal things as long as we're being prudent in all of our words and actions. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you can do that as a Catholic while also loving your faith and your church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. And like too, that we're like when probably part of the new evangelization is getting into the trenches with people and getting alongside them. And if we shut ourselves off and like want to exist in a bubble where it's like, ah, you know, I really don't want to interact with what today's culture presents, then like we're missing out because we're missing out on, on how people are living and what people are experiencing in today's world for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really important to be, yeah. Like a kind of a cliche in my Catholic circles is, you know, be in the world, but not of the world. Mm-hmm. And I really like that because it really yeah, sets it in stone for me. Like I can be a, you know, quote unquote normal person. I normal is a very relative term. But you can be a part of the culture and, you know, enjoy the same things that your friends do in general, um, as long as you're, like, making everything about Christ. And it's kind of neat 
to be able to take those uh, cultural norms and put it in context of our faith. Like one big example that I'm thinking of is when I saw Wonder Woman uh, four times in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like mildly obsessed with that movie. I saw it with a different person each time. <laughs> and so I took notes on it the last two times that I saw it and just some of the things that I absolutely loved about it, um, different aspects and how it relates to my faith. Mm-hmm. And so I have this whole list of different incredible lines that you know wonder woman said um one that's coming to my mind right now is you know um, i will fight for those who cannot fight for themselves mm-hmm. and she's talking about the people who are the victims of the war mm-hmm. that's going on and how fearless she is in that and i thought of saint joan of arc and how she was so brave and willing to sacrifice herself before anyone else and just ultimately wanting the best for people and then about how like christ does that for us like, yes. every day in our life and especially when he did that on the cross for us so it's really neat how you can relate these um, cultural like aspects and norms of today to our faith, and kind of like I learn more about my faith through those things. So I feel like it can actually be kind of used as an evangelization tool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's so true. And stuff that you would have missed out on if you said, "Well, like that that movie isn't like." blatantly christian and so i'm going to skip out on it because i you know live in the world not of it and so if you skipped out on that but how much beauty there is in (laughs) in movies like wonder woman and other things too where you can find god even in in literature in in art or in movies and how much we we'd miss out on that if we just kind of retreat and say no like i really don't want to be involved in today's culture so another stereotype that um, a lot of people that i've encountered have thought about my faith is that like, I'm taught through my church and my faith to be against modern science and technology, mm. which doesn't make sense to me because, like, if anything, science furthers my belief in our almighty, powerful God who, you know, loved us so much that he gave us the tools to learn about how everything came to be. Mm. And it's so mind-boggling and fascinating to me. Like, every time I just think of, like, all of these intricate details that God used, like, for everything that we see and are as we know it. It just, it makes me believe in his love even further. Um, but I think I heard this myth wrong when I gave a biology presentation on the theorist of the Big Bang, who was a Belgian Catholic priest. Yes. <laughs> it was, that was fun to kind of glance back at my professor every now and then and <laughs> see how he reacted. He was one of those professors who kind of underestimated my abilities. <laughs> experience yeah well it's incredible like when you dive into that like you're saying like people thinking that catholicism and science kind of just butt heads and when you dig into a lot of science like there's a lot of catholicism and in, in at the root of a lot of scientific theories and discoveries and so yeah it's but i've come across that stereotype too and even in writing about scientific things where it's like oh you can't write about that because you're catholic like no like i'm writing about it because i'm catholic <laughs> Exactly. Yep. They know their stuff. They do. They <laughs> sure do. <laughs> so, part of your life experience has involved spina bifida. What are some well, can't even talk. What are some stereotypes that you faced with your disability, <laughs> and how can you break those stereotypes? Yeah. So, basically, for any listeners who might not know what this is, um, spina bifida is a uh, neural tube defect. So, it um, causes nerve damage in really any part of the spine possible. Um, mine is considered the most, uh, or like the type that I have is considered the most severe, but the level that I have it at is 
like relatively low compared to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I can walk, but it caused nerve damage in my legs and feet and some organs. So like I walk with a limp that's clearly visible to anybody who's like paying attention at all. So like because of this, because it was like visible to everyone that I encountered, mm -hmm. um, I encountered a lot of um, like bigotry and discrimination kind of from the time that I was little. Um, felt like an outsider, especially starting on my first day of kindergarten. I have a specific memory of um, being in my classroom and being the shortest one, always the shortest one in every, every social circle. On my first day of kindergarten, my teacher had me step out of the classroom with the teacher's assistant for a few minutes, and she didn't tell me why, and I was kind of confused. I was like, what's going on here? But when I came back inside a few minutes later, um, a bunch of my classmates started asking me about my disease oh, and how man. they could avoid catching it, and they, and they specifically used the word disease. Oh. And I don't know too many five-year-olds who could work on their own, so <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that was probably my teacher used. Um, I knew that she, she met well, and she just wanted to, like, tell my classmates, you know, that I'm different and things like that, mm -hmm. but it kind of made, um, kind of made them, like, treat me more like an outcast than anything, even though I think that was the total opposite of the consequence that she intended. Yeah. Um, but this one experience definitely impacted my self-esteem a lot, um, it kind of made me feel like, I will never be normal or as adequate as my peers. So that's been a huge struggle just kind of throughout my 19 short years of life. Um, <laughs> kind of having to overcome that idea that's been placed in my head time and time again that I am so different from everyone else and that like I can never be as good as they are because of this. Mm -hmm. That might sound ridiculous to someone who doesn't have a disability, but when you do have one, it's like you encounter this usually on a daily basis or, you know, often. Uh -huh. um, and so it's really hard. It's like so difficult to be telling yourself every day, like, I am good enough and I'm loved by Christ and my family and my friends when, like, so many times I've been told the opposite. So it's definitely, like, something that I'm still having to remind myself of every single day because, like, people underestimated me in just about every way possible when I was younger, especially and still to this day, sometimes some acquaintances and peers have assumed that I'm not capable of succeeding uh, because, you know, I live with chronic illnesses. I have, you know, like chronic headaches and migraines and um, just some other things that, like, you know, make things more difficult. And sometimes those um, health conditions dictate whether I go to a sleepover or on a conference or whether I go to class that day. Sometimes if a headache is bad enough. So, like I said before, I don't really try to overcome these stereotypes because I feel the need to prove myself to anyone, but more like to encourage others around me um, to do what they can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because I know that no matter what background someone comes from, you know, whether they have a disability or something that makes them physically, you know, evidently different um, from others, or if they just feel like um, generally inadequate or like they've had this social status kind of transcribed for them, and they've been told, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, whatever it may be. Um, I feel that through trying to overcome that stereotype of, I'm inadequate because of this, mm -hmm. I, at least I really try to help others around me, whether they can specifically relate to me or not, realize that it's not true, and that you don't have to be 
who people say you are. And that is one thing that I absolutely love about St. John Paul II. As I mentioned before, he's one of my absolute favorite saints because I absolutely love this quote that he said when he um, visited his home country of Poland, um, when he, I believe he had just become Pope recently, mm-hmm. when he visited Poland and it had been taken over by communists. And he told the gigantic crowd, he said, you are not who they say you are. Let me remind you of who you are. That is so powerful to me. I remember the first time I heard that phrase a few years ago. I was like, whoa, what if someone had said that to me when I was in like second grade and I was getting bullied and I was like, you know, having a hard time believing that I was, you know, like loved fully by like the people around me and those who mean a lot to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that sentence is just so powerful to me. It seems so simple, but... It really reminds me every day, like, I'm not who anyone says I am except Christ. Like, he alone yeah. is the one who gets to say whether or not I have worth and value, and he absolutely says that I do. I had a um, a friend who was a priest who recorded a homily from yesterday, and he talked about that same um, trip to Poland, and he was talking about how powerful that is and how, how much we desire to see how much we should desire to see ourselves as God sees us. And that's so powerful. And yeah, what a small, like most of I, the quotes that I love from John Paul II are so small and short, but man, they pack a powerful punch um, when it comes to like our spiritual life and, and for being such small little snippets into his life, they just give us a ton to like sit and ponder on and meditate for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was a man of words. Sure. Oh, amen. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of John Paul II, so you have an incredible tattoo, which I love and I am so jealous of. (laughs) Can you tell us the story behind the tattoo that you have and whether you face stereotypes because of your tattoo and how you break those stereotypes too? Um, Well, first of all, I'm going to say no one's stopping you. At least I'm not stopping you from getting to your nearest tattoo parlor and getting the same tattoo that I have. I absolutely love it. Actually, before I got it, I didn't tell anyone except for my family members and Maddie. <laughs> because I knew that she wouldn't steal it from me. She's such a beautiful friend. <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't want anyone to steal the idea because, you know, it's just so unique. And I've never seen it tattooed on anyone before. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually had to look kind of far and wide to find um, this specific, um, like, image of what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tattoo that I have is, um, it's pronounced Niebożsi in Polish, and it is in St. John Paul II's handwriting, and it means be not afraid. I love it. So that was his motto. That was the phrase that he used basically everywhere he went, and it's interesting because that was the phrase that Christ used, mm-hmm. be not afraid. Um, and it, you know, that's just three simple words, mm-hmm. but when you really think about um, what St. John Paul II had to endure in his, in his life and the experiences that he had that required him to be unafraid of things. Like, um, he, when he was really young, by the time that he was 20 years old, he lost all of his immediate family members to, you know, different circumstances and illnesses. Um, the Nazis took over Poland when he was only 19. Yeah. He survived an assassination when he was Pope. And then he forgave that man in person. And I love to sometimes just Google that picture of and video of um, JP2 meeting with that man and greeting him with such love. He was looking at him like he was like, 
I don't know, how I look at my cats or something. <laughs> <laughs> or at someone that I love. Like, if I had seen a picture of him talking with the man who attempted to murder him, then I would not think, oh, like, I bet that guy tried to assassinate him. Yeah. Like, he was talking to him with such love, just like the gaze that Christ gives us. And it makes me think of Christ upon the cross looking at us yeah. that way and not thinking of everything that we have done against him, but thinking of everything that he is doing for us in the present moment to redeem us and um, forgive us and show us mercy that our minds can't even fathom. And I truly believe, I mean, in order to forgive someone who's done something um, so horrible to another person, that requires such supernatural grace. And that's one huge way that John Paul II has impacted me in forgiving people who have, um, you know, done and said really cruel things to me before. Not so much the kind of attitude of like, oh, you know, you should be happy because someone has it worse. Because I never really liked that phrase. No. <laughs> but it more just shows me that if Pope John Paul II um, experienced such hatred in, in his life, both, you know, whether it be the Nazis trying to kill him and his family, um, or forgiving the man who tried to assassinate, assassinate him, um, it just makes me think, like, if he had that courage, then I should really pray for the Christians to be able to do that myself in my own life, in, you know, to forgive people who committed such uh, less significant things against me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I just absolutely love that quote. It means so much to me. And when I was at that tattoo parlor getting the tattoo, I got it the day after my 18th birthday last year. Um, the, the guy who was um, putting the tattoo in my skin <laughs> asked me about it. Like, I guess I'm a consultation a couple weeks beforehand and told him about it. And he asked me, like, what's your inspiration behind this? And I basically just told him the same thing that I just told you. Mm -hmm. And he thought that was so neat. He, he was, like, really impacted oh. that those w would mean so much to someone. Um, and they wouldn't mean as much if you didn't know, like, the story of JP2's life, which mm -hmm. was just so phenomenal in every way. But I got the tattoo not because I am fearless, but because I need to grow in that virtue of fearlessness and being unafraid and not thinking, what are people going to think of me and say and do against me, but rather just a trust that um, God's plan will always prevail and there's nothing that um, could ever stop me as long as I am unafraid like through him. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. That's so beautiful. That's one of my favorite phrases from John Paul II. It's the one that Joseph and I have, not in Polish, but in English, um, that be not afraid is engraved on our wedding rings. And so I loved when you got that because that's always been a phrase that I've, that has definitely like resonated in my life too. So good pick. <laughs> wow. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> righty, Final stereotype. What are some stereotypes that Catholic women who are pro-life face today? How do you combat a culture that says being anti-abortion is being anti-woman? And how can we break stereotypes surrounding the pro-life movement and help others recognize the beauty of what it means to be a human and how humans have dignity? Kat, this is a really excellent one. Um, I love how much our culture is changing in terms of accepting um, pro-life values, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to abortion. Like our generation right now, um, we are the most pro-life generation that the world has basically ever seen, mm -hmm. statistically speaking, which is incredible to me because a lot of um, 
yeah, like millennials and you know the younger people, young us youngins, um, <laughs> face a lot of you know comments from people saying like, oh, kids these days. And I know that's the way it is with every generation, but it just gives me so much hope um, to know that my generation truly like is against abortion. And so I think people are coming around a lot more than they were even just five years ago. <laughs> um, so it's really beautiful, but there definitely are still a lot of people who think that you can't be pro-woman if you're pro-life, or that you can't be a pro-life feminist. Mm-hmm. All kinds of um, different ideas that people have had put into their minds, and they oftentimes don't want to think differently. But when people um, meet me with phrases like this, you know, you can't be pro-life and pro-woman, mm-hmm. I just kind of bring up um, how much damage abortion can do to a woman, and you know, this is using statistics again that's not to say that every single woman regrets it but um, every single woman that I've ever encountered at least wished even if she didn't regret her abortion she wished that she had had more resources and that she would have had someone to support her and be there for her and say it doesn't matter to me what you've done or how this all happened or how you got into this situation but I love you and I'm here for you and I want to do anything I can um, to help you get through this situation And so I think really um, meeting people with that phrase rather than just bringing up the illegal side of things, but also mentioning, like, I am passionate about helping the women Mm -hmm. do. This isn't just a pro-birth movement, as people have said before, um, just helping them until the baby is born and then sending them on their way. That's absolutely not what a movement should be about, although sometimes um, some people approach it with that mindset, and that's really unfortunate because that's not what... I'm about at all. So I just love to um, have these, you know, really meaningful discussions with people talking about how can we as a culture change the mindset of um, crisis pregnancy and unexpected pregnancy and how can we support our individual women in our lives who are facing these situations and truly making um, the culture be one that celebrates all life. And uh, I think that is truly the key, like changing the culture is going to be what it takes to truly abolish abortion and all of the damage that it has done to our society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's so true. I love that too, where it's not, this isn't just about having a a healthy birth. This is about a human, a human being and like who has been, who's been human since the moment of conception and will be human until the moment of natural death. And that whole process and that whole journey is something that should be protected. And we should see like the whole human existence as, as one of dignity. And we should try to protect that for sure. Yes, exactly. And I was kind of discussing the same thing. Um, a couple of days ago, I went to a, um, students for life leadership conference. It's mm-hmm. great. We talked all about, um, yeah, about like how our society views women and how that, like the sexism of our society that's so often found still to this day has um, impacted like the role of abortion in our world and in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, because the idea that women are not strong enough to do things on their own um, has, you know, in many parts of the world still is true today. Um, but that whole idea is exactly what the abortion industry is based off of. Mm-hmm. The idea of you can't do this, you're not strong enough, you're not ready to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're not ready, but you shouldn't be <laughs> discouraging them from doing something that they are capable of, they absolutely are. And they oftentimes just need that one person to stand up for them and say, you are strong enough to do yep. this. Uh, we'll, I'll help you 
in any way that I can. And I believe that this is what true empowerment is. And I can't think of anything more empowering um, as a woman than to help another woman mm-hmm. uh, in bringing life into the world, because that is truly like that is such a beautiful um, center of of our femininity. And I think that is such an incredible thing. And if we all started doing that, we would be unstoppable. Yeah. Yep. And it goes back to that, like your relationships with other women and how this isn't because I want to one up someone or I want to prove someone wrong. This is because, you know, we all deserve an opportunity at life and we all deserve to you know, be able to stand up for ourselves and be able to say what's on our minds and what's on our hearts without being stereotyped into a box. Yes, absolutely. So who are your, some of your favorite role models for breaking stereotypes? So this can be people both in your own life as well as your friendships, but also with the saints too. Oh, this is, this is one of my favorite questions to think about what I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know so many incredible people, especially women, mm-hmm. um, who are such phenomenal examples to me of being fearless, even if they aren't fearless 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they truly like, embody what it means to be a woman of Christ and a woman who's living her life like through him and for him completely. Mm-hmm. Um, the first person that comes to mind is my mom. Uh, she is the most wonderful person on earth. <laughs> <laughs> she is, yeah, throughout my whole life, she's just sacrificed so much for me. Um, she's been there for me when she had so many other things to take care of. She always puts uh, me and my siblings first. And a lot of people think, oh, well, you have you know, five siblings. That's a big family. How could she do that? I'm like, it's the grace of God and yeah. just the isingness that is my mother. <laughs> <laughs> But um, she's shown me, like I was mentioning before, that you don't have to be who the world says that you are or who the world says that you um, should or are going to be. Um, And like St. John Paul II reminded us like so many times throughout his life um, and that legacy lives on that you don't have to subscribe to this idea of, um, oh, you'll never be good enough. You know, my mom has always been there to remind me that no matter what anyone thinks of me, um, I am completely loved by her, and I've never had to doubt that. And so she's such a strong, outspoken um, example for me, and I'm so grateful for um, everything that she's done for me throughout my life. Um, another person that comes to mind is St. Joan of Arc. Yes. I absolutely love her. Mm. Um, <laughs> everybody does, whether they're Catholic or not. <laughs> <laughs> But I was especially thinking of her because I just turned 19, mm-hmm. and St. Joan of Arc was 19 when she was yeah. murdered. So I think one thing that is quite remarkable about her life was that um, some of the witnesses who um, saw her death said that she was actually, she seemed terrified of the death that she was about to endure. Because, I mean, obviously, who wouldn't? Yeah, seriously, though. And you know you're going to burn to the stake, of course. You're terrified. But it was just so, like, so many of the witnesses said that they were amazed that she was doing it anyways, especially as such a young woman. And in that time, in particular, like, women were not viewed very well. And people were amazed that she had so much courage and um, that she was so willing to do something despite, like, the negative consequences it was going to have on her life, which was death. But she knew that she was doing it all for Christ, and so that is... That's an incredible thing to me, and I think that can impact anyone of any age or background. Yeah, 
That's so beautiful. Yeah, Joan of Arc is one of my favorites too. And just, gosh dang it, there's so many beautiful saints who are women who broke so many stereotypes of what they were expected to do or who people thought that they should be. Like, way to be surrounded by like such a beautiful cloud of witnesses and to know that we're not alone. Yes, absolutely. It's so beautiful. One more was um, St. Edith Stein. Yes. She, oh my gosh, does love that woman. And I think I find her especially relatable because she didn't live that long ago. She lived, um, she died during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she was a convert to Catholicism. She was um, born into a Jewish family. Um, and then by the time that she was, I believe, 15 or 16, she realized she didn't believe in God. And so she, um, she defined herself as an atheist. But then as she got older, um, she she was still fascinated by religion. She was extremely intellectual, read all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as she got older, she decided she wanted to pursue an education in um, religion and like specifically Catholicism. And so she received her doctorate degree, which I think is amazing because like she was a woman living in you know the 30s and or yeah 20s and 30s, I guess is when that all that happened. Mm-hmm. And that was such a brave thing for her to do, to be like, um, I'm not going to let anybody tell me that I'm not as smart as them because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, she advocated, this is, I think, the most incredible part to me is that she became a Carmelite nun. Yeah. Um, but she still made such a big impact on the world within her cloister. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so neat how, um, it reminds me also of St. Therese of Lisieux, who was also a Carmelite nun. And how she's a patron saint of missionaries. Yeah. Even though she spent the better part of her life in a cloister. Mm-hmm. Like, she just was so prayerful. And she was a missionary in her own way within the doors of her convent. Which really shows me how we can all do that in our everyday lives. And how, like, for me, it's in my, you know, classrooms or um, rehearsals. <laughs> because I'm a music student. <laughs> all kinds of opportunities to break stereotypes and... Um, show the world like this is what living a truly bold life looks like through Christ. Yes, I love that. That's so beautiful. And too that like like even with Saint Therese, like she wasn't confined by where she was, and she'd spent her whole life saying, you know, oh gosh dang it, this isn't what I thought it would look like. I wanted to do something different. Like what a missed opportunity she would have had to live the life that God was calling to her within those walls of the the Carmelite cloister. Yes, absolutely. He he calls us to be holy exactly where we are. Yep. And there's, um, oh, another, another Teresa, St. Teresa, mm-hmm. St. Teresa of Avila. Yes. <laughs> she, one of the quotes by her is, um, may today you trust that where you are is exactly where you are meant to be. Mm-hmm. And I love that quote. And I think it's a much holier version of the quote, everything happens for a reason. Yep. Um, <laughs> it means a lot more to me. It's funny because I just wrote a paper about how much I dislike that phrase. Everything happens for a reason. <laughs> because it just seems very Mm wishy-washy and I just I because I'm exposed to the Catholic mindset of like God can bring such beautiful things out of this it just seems um like our faith truly teaches us the meanings of redemptive suffering and um accepting our crosses where we are in life and letting Christ help us carry them yes that's so beautiful speaking of Catholicism so this question (laughs) is why does why does every person no matter who they are, have a place in the Catholic Church? And how can we, with all of our unique and beautiful differences, bring God glory? And you kind of touched on this with, like, being holy with where you're at. But do you have any other thoughts on that one? Yeah, so I, um, 
I found my, I guess you could say my role in uh, the church, my place in, in our Catholic faith. Um, when I was around age 15, mm-hmm. when I started cantering at my parish, um, cantering during Mass. So I absolutely love doing that. It is this, I get so much joy out of doing that because what's so beautiful about it is that I don't have to worry about like impressing Jesus um, <laughs> or being <laughs> adequate like I do in other areas of my life. You know, like I said, I'm a music student. Mm-hmm. And so in every other uh, musical setting, I'm having to, you know, prove to someone at least, yes. um, show that I am working hard and that I'm, you know, learning and growing. Um, but it's just so beautiful that being at mass, I don't have to worry about that, you know, and I can just let, um, let Christ, uh, sounds so cliche, but let him sing through me mm-hmm. rather than me having to do like all the work. It's just so rewarding to be able to uh, participate in the mass in such like, an intimate way. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I have a really awesome view of the consecration when it happens. <laughs> and I absolutely love being right up close. It, yeah. <laughs> So that's brought me so much deeper into the faith than I ever thought possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a lot of friends, actually, who, you know, have asked me, like, how did you find your place in the church? And how do I find my place? Um, and that's okay that a lot of people don't know exactly maybe what their role or their job in our church is yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it really all depends on your life experience. But ultimately, our place is where we're needed most. And yeah. that could be anywhere. Sometimes after Mass, when I see the Knights of Columbus downstairs at Coffee Nuggets or like the Altar and Rosary Society having their meetings or the parish council, I just think of how amazing that is that these people have found where their gifts can be used for God's glory in the most um, fruitful and beautiful way possible. Um, like a good, you know, friend, family friend of mine, um, like she loves making programs and advertisements and um, she's involved in marketing in her day job and so she loves to do that kind of thing for our parish Mm -hmm. and so she yeah whenever our parish has like fish fries or other events she loves to be like at the front lines of that and i think that's so amazing because we need people who are willing to use their you know otherwise um seen as secular talents or um, skills within the church because like the body of christ you know has so many millions of parts and so i think that's so amazing to um, use our gifts wherever we feel or wherever we see them best fit into it. And sometimes it takes a while to figure out where that is. But um, ultimately, like, where our place in the church is where God is calling to us to in the present moment. Yes, that's so beautiful. And everyone has like a unique set of talents and gifts that they've been given. And so no one's place is going to look exactly the same. So when you're looking for your spot in the church, it can't just be like, well, Lizzie does this. So I'll do what Lizzie does. And then I'll find my spot. It's like, no, like God's God's calling you to something specific. Like that's with your gifts and with your talents. And and there is a specific spot for you. And the church does need you. Yes. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Alrighty, last question before we close it out. How do you live the feminine genius in your everyday life today? Oh, goodness. Well, I try. (laughs) (laughs) I try in every aspect of definitely struggle at times. Um, But yeah, being a woman in today's world, as I'm sure every listener um, knows, (laughs) is very challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, just a woman in general comes with so many struggles and 
um, difficulties and stereotypes as we've been talking about that we have to face. Mm -hmm. And then being a Catholic woman just puts a whole new twist on it. But I think that living out the feminine genius is um, such a precious opportunity to have because like we were just talking about, you can do this in any way that God is calling you to do. Like he's not calling you to be just like St. Therese, even though she's a lovely saint. Um, <laughs> we can, of course, imitate the saints in their virtues and their holy lives that they lived. But um, he wants us to be our own unique person. And so the feminine genius, I believe, truly shows us how to do that um, in our lives. And I love how when St. John Paul II wrote um, like about the feminine genius, he didn't say, this was the ideal Catholic woman. Like, yes. He wasn't like, she's, you know, meek and humble and, you know, spends all day baking or <laughs> and knits and things like that. Yeah. You know, no offense to any knitters out there. I just don't know how to knit myself. So <laughs> if I fall to teach me, I'm open to learning. <laughs> but there's no cookie cutter mold of um, how we're supposed to be as far as being a Catholic woman. Of course, we're all called to holiness, but that will look different for every person and especially every woman. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, um, like I said, living out your vocation where, where the world and where the church needs you the most in the present moment. Um, and it's really important to remember that, you know, a lot of people um, will worry that they're not going to follow the vocation that God has planned for their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking like, this God wouldn't be a sister or a wife or, you know, a husband or a priest, whatever it may be. Um, people worry so much about that. And because of that, they don't focus as much as we're called to on the present moment and where God is calling us right now and to like, live out our vocation of holiness and love and joy through him in the people that we see every day that, you know, no matter who it may be, um, but God didn't create us to be one another, you know, he created us to be our own specific person. And it's really through that that we can show the world, like what it looks like to live a holy life. And I often think of how, um, yeah, like you mentioned, so many um, women kind of struggle to you know, with comparing themselves to others, and I certainly understand that. Um, but it's so important that we help each other carry our crosses um, towards heaven. And I think of how like um, Jesus, you know, he is the Son of God, and he didn't need Simon of Cyrene, so to speak, to get God, and he can do anything, and he could have carried the cross alone if he wanted to. But I love to think of it in this way, that Jesus wanted to display one last example of brotherly love before he sacrificed his life for us. For remember that if we help each other carry our crosses, then that is the key to everything, and that is, that is where it all begins and ends, and that's what everything in a relationship is about, whether it's marriage or friendship or our relationship with Christ. He helps us carry our crosses every single day, and I think that if women started to do that, then like the sainthood, the road of sainthood, which cannot be seen really long, um, it, would, it would be greatly consoling if women started helping each other carry our crosses and we would really change the world. Amen. That's beautiful. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for sharing your story and how you break stereotypes. And thanks for breaking those stereotypes for, for us too and for starting conversations. And it's been beautiful to chat with you. So thanks for coming on the show. Yes, thank you so much. This has been awesome. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can find out about 
how to find Lizzie on social media, as well as the resources that we mentioned in this episode on my blog, oldfashionedgirlblog.com. Have you thought about sponsoring a Letters to Women episode? This podcast is a great platform to reach out to Catholic women and tell them about your business. Send an email to chloe.langer at gmail.com to find out more information. If you'd like a sneak peek at the newest episodes and access to polls and forums that help me decide who to interview next on the show, join my support team at Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com backslash letters to women. And that's all I have for this episode. So until next time, be not afraid. Be not afraid.